0: If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who wrote it. Every word of God is true and pure. Because your spirit is true and pure. What a phenomenal thing, Father. That you would write your word through your spirit through holy men of God and then you'd place that same spirit inside of us so we could understand what you meant by what you said so we depend upon your spirit to enlighten us that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart today be pleasing in your sight that your word would be that lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And even now that we would commit our hearts to not just hearing about it, but doing it for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the necessity of forgiveness out of Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And as you've turned there, just let me remind you, because it'll be important for you to remember this today, that forgiveness is the releasing emotionally of one who has wounded us, of one who has sinned against us, of one who who has hurt us. And it's clearing their record with us and transferring any, any vindication to God. So that forgiveness is not so much for that person, it's for us. It's a releasing for us. It's very important that you remember that as we get into what we're gonna talk about today. We've been looking at five aspects of forgiveness from this passage in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 35 we looked at, first of all, the parameters of forgiveness in verse 21 and 22, where Jesus, or Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And remember, Peter was being generous because the scribes said you only had to forgive a person three times For the same offense, and after that, you didn't have to forgive. And Peter thought, Well, I'm going to be really generous. And seven times, and the answer that Jesus gave to Peter was shocking to Peter. In verse 22, he said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And Jesus didn't mean to count or multiply to 490. So that when you get to 489, whoo, I'm almost done forgiving this guy. That's not the case. It was that there are no limits. There are no parameters. There are no boundaries. There is no cutoff to the amount of times that we should forgive. And by the way, Jesus absolutely knew that his disciples would struggle with that concept. And he knew that we would struggle with it. And so what he does then is he gives us a parable to demonstrate why he had just said there are no limits to forgiveness. So last week, we looked at that parable. And that was the second aspect, the parable demonstrating forgiveness in verses 23 through 27. And we learned from that parable about a king, a servant, excuse me, who owed a king an unpayable debt. And yet the king, in his graciousness and his mercy, was fully able to free him and forgive that servant from that debt. And we learned that that parable has application for us. God is the king. We are are the first servant. Those of you who have experienced salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are that first servant. We owed God a debt, an unpayable debt, an insurmountable debt, an incomprehensible debt, a debt that we couldn't have paid no matter how long long we live. As a matter of fact, the reason that people are in hell is because they can't pay that debt. The reason they're never going to get out of hell is because they can't pay that debt. It's an unbelievable debt. And yet God moved with compassion, moved with mercy, with grace and forgiveness, sent Jesus to satisfy his righteous demands and to free us completely of the penalty and guilt of our sin and forgive us fully when we trusted in Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what we looked at last week. But it is very important for us to remember that we are that first servant, because if you lose sight of that, then you're going to miss the whole perspective of what Jesus is trying to really teach in this parable to help us learn what it means for us to be forgiving. And that brings us now to what we want to talk about today, the third aspect of forgiveness from this passage And it's included in this parable, but I kind of divided the parable in half. So the first part was last week, a parable demonstrating forgiveness. Now we want to look at the parable demonstrating unforgiveness. And it's a continuation. So here's this first servant who's been forgiven this insurmountable debt. Notice what happens now in verse 28, the behavior of the first servant. And when that same servant, the one that was fully forgiven... When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Wow. You would think, after realizing the magnitude of his own debt and the magnitude of the king's compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness to him that this man would have met the most genteel, kind, humble, merciful, gracious, forgiving person you would ever want to meet. But what we read in these verses is absolutely shocking concerning his behavior. Verse 28, this servant went out and found. Very interesting phrase. That word found is an interesting word. It appears in Matthew 7, 7, and I know you're probably familiar with that, where Jesus said, ask and you shall receive, seek and ye shall what? You shall find. It's the same word. And it implies a finding that is the result of an all-out search. So what that means is, is that this servant didn't just happen to stumble across someone who owed him a debt while he was shopping at Walmart, okay? He intentionally and intently sought out this person for the purpose of collecting a debt that was owed to him. That debt is described in verse 28 as 100 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. Now stop and think about this. If you remember last week, the first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. And we kind of surmised that a talent in those days might have been like 20 years worth of work, 20 years worth of wages. And he owed him 10,000, which meant that this guy would have to live for over 200,000 years just to pay that debt off. Here's a guy that only owes 100 denarii. If a denarii is a wage, that means he owed just a little over three months of wages, easily something that could be paid back. But look at the first servant's behavior, verse 28. He seized him by the way, strong word there, it means to put into a stronghold I mean, he he just overpowered this guy physically and he began to choke him, saying pay what you owe. Now, That behavior is not necessarily bizarre in itself in those days. I mean, in those days, we've been told it was an uncommon thing for a, it was an uncommon, not an uncommon thing for a creditor to uh, wrench a debtor's neck so hard that blood would squirt out of his nose. I mean, this is mafia stuff back there, all right? That's not what's bizarre. What's bizarre was how the servant who had been shown so much grace and so much mercy and so much forgiveness by the king could be so harsh in treating someone else the way that he did. Now hold on to that thought. Because now we're introduced to this second servant. Notice the request of this servant in verse 29. So his fellow servant... And by the way, I love the fact that Jesus used the word fellow servant. Not just servant, not just another servant, fellow servant. What Jesus was trying to get across to us is this is how a believer was treating another believer. It was a fellow servant. They were part of the family together. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now just stop there for a minute. Go back in your Bible to verse 26. Remember when the first servant was standing in front of the king and the king says, pay what you owe. And here's what the first servant says in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees. And some version says they actually fell on his face. He fell on his knees imploring him, imploring the king. And what did he say to the king? Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, when you compare those two verses, there's a couple things that stand out. First of all, the statement itself from the second servant should have shocked the first servant, right? I mean, he should have had a V8 moment. Whoa, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, I said that. That's what I had just said to the king earlier. And secondly, the first servant should have realized that unlike his request to the king which would have been impossible for him to fulfill. He couldn't pay back the debt. There wasn't any way he could ever pay back the debt. It was possible for this second servant to pay him back and in a relatively short period of time. But all that just flew out the window. Notice now, verse 30, the first servant's response. And by the way, there are two responses. Verse 30 says this. First, he refused. I like the way the old King James says it, he could not, or excuse me, he would not, he would not. That uh, phrase, he refused or he would not, is in a, a continuous tense. What that simply means is this, is that the request of the second servant was a repeated plea, and every time he made the plea, the first servant repeatedly refused it. Just, it wasn't a one-time thing. He just kept refusing, refusing, refusing. No matter how often this guy begged him, he just refused it. So every time the second servant begged the first servant to be patient, the first servant said, no way. No way. Interesting play on words, too. Back, on, back in verse 25, when the first servant was standing in front of the king, his condition was he could not pay. Now the second servant is standing in front of him and he would not let this guy pay. There's a lot of difference, isn't there, between could not and would not. One has to do with ability, the other has to do with willingness. Even if the first servant would have been willing to pay, he could not because he didn't have the ability. But that's not the case with the second servant. Here, the first servant wasn't even willing. He would not. He refused over and over to let this man pay back the debt. But notice what else he did. Not only did he refuse, but secondly, he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I don't know about you. I read that. I just laugh. I'm thinking, okay, here is the stupidity of unforgiveness. So you want the man to pay the debt off, so you put him in prison. Did the light bulb go on with that? How in the world is he going to pay the debt off if he's in prison? Which tells me something about unforgiveness. It makes you irrational. You don't think straight. You don't think clearly. The very penalty that had mercifully been erased by the king... On the first servant's debt was now enforced by this servant upon his fellow servant. Now, let's just stop here again and make some application about this parable so far. We've already identified the Cain, he's God. And last week, we had identified the first servant. First servant represents us as true believers. So now the question is this, who does the second servant in this parable represent? And may I suggest to you this, that the second servant represents anyone who we think owes us. Did you get that? Anyone who we think owes us. Anyone who's hurt us, abused us, failed us, sinned against us. Anyone that we think we have a valid charge against of wrongdoing. And isn't that true? Isn't that how we think? Isn't that how a lot of people think? That when someone hurts you, someone wounds you, someone sins against you, someone offends you, someone fails you, that in your minds we believe they owe us. They owe us. I don't know how many times I've heard people say in their anger they're going to pay. They're going to pay for what they did for me. You never ever heard anybody say that? They're going to pay for what they did for me. What are they really saying? They owe me. They owe me. Now, at this point, there are a couple things that we need to be clear on, all right? Though the second servant's debt was small compared to the first servant's debt, it was a real debt. Jesus is not poo pooing the fact here that the second servant did owe the first servant. That's not the issue. So understand that Jesus is saying the second servant did owe the first servant. He was guilty of not paying his debt, just as the first servant was guilty of not paying his debt to the king. What does that mean to us? It means this that when someone offends us, or someone sins against us, or someone hurts us, or someone wounds us, it is a real offense. And God is not poo-pooing that. If you've been hurt by someone, if you've been disappointed by someone, if someone has let you down, if someone has sinned against you, God is not overlooking that. God is not saying to you, just get over it. Okay? He's understanding it's a real wound. He's acknowledging that there's a real debt there. It's not that God did not understand that that, the second servant owed a debt. It's not that God does not understand that a person may have let you down, may have failed you, may have hurt you. It's that he doesn't accept our reaction to that. That's the issue. He doesn't accept our reaction. That's Jesus' point. By showing the bizarre behavior of the first servant. It wasn't that the second servant didn't owe the first servant. It's after owing the king such an immeasurable unpayable debt, how could he possibly be so harsh, so uncaring, so unmerciful, so unforgiving concerning this smaller debt that was owed to him? In other words, in light of what he had just experienced from the king, what was bizarre about his behavior was that he wouldn't show the same kind of compassion that he had received the same kind of forgiveness, the same kind of mercy to the second service. That it wouldn't immediately come to his mind. Oh, wait a minute, this is how the king treated me. Oh, this is how I want to treat him. Now, once again, the parable is a living illustration for us. So how does this apply to us? Well, let's remember, our debt... Our debt to God was unpayable. It was immeasurable. It was insurmountable. It was incomprehensible how we had sinned against God. So how, beloved, how can we not forgive someone whose debt to us is not greater than ours was to God? As a matter of fact, let me say, this is the point of the whole teaching in this passage so I don't care if you didn't get anything the first week and I don't care if you didn't get anything last week but I'm telling you get this one okay get this you and I will never ever experience anything from anyone in our life to which we will have to forgive them more than what God has had to forgive us do you understand that? That is so important. Look, look, you killed his son. He died for you. We owed God the greater debt. And if you don't forgive someone when they wrong you, you know, it's, it says one of two things about you. Either you have forgotten how great your sin was before God or you don't care. Which by the way, that's what unre- unresolved bitterness does. It makes us uncaring, it makes us consumed with ourselves, with our own hurts, our own wounds. And we wanna make sure that payment is made to us because they owe us. Now let's look fourthly, beginning in verse 31, at the penalty for unforgiveness, because there is a penalty. Verse 31 says, when his fellow servants, that is the second servant, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that the master is synonymous with the king. So the king and the master are the same person. We're talking about God here, okay? They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master... The first servant's master, the king, summoned him and said to him, Whoa, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you plead with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, some think that because the king calls this servant wicked, that the servant wasn't a true believer. I don't believe that. Because listen, sin is wickedness, isn't it? And wickedness is sin. I don't care whether it's committed by a believer or an unbeliever. Believers have as much potential for wickedness as unbelievers do because we still live in unredeemed flesh. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 and 17, walk in the spirit so you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh for because the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these two are contrary one to the other so you can't do the things that you want to do and then in verses 19 through 21 in Galatians 5, he goes on and talks about the works of the flesh, all the deeds of the flesh and he says if you practice these continually yes, you're not part of the kingdom of God. It means you weren't saved in the first place, but it doesn't mean that you can't commit those acts as a, as a believer and they're wicked by the way so there's no question here just because he calls him a wicked servant that does not mean he's an unbeliever now what was his penalty for not forgiving verse 34 and in anger because God is always angry with sin Always angry with sin. He doesn't care whether he's angry with sin because a non believer commits it or he's angry with sin because one of his own children committed it. There is anger with God. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, circle that word in your Bible, jailers, until he should pay all his debt. Now, I want you to understand what the king is angry about here, at least from my perspective. I don't believe the king is angry because the first servant didn't give the second servant a chance to pay back the debt. I don't believe that's what he's angry about. I think he's angry because the first servant demanded the debt to be paid back at all. I mean, that first servant should have showed the same compassion and mercy and grace that was shown him when the king released him of his debt and forgave him the whole thing. But he had totally, totally forgotten what he owed the king and the mercy and grace of the king. So now what does the king do? Look at verse 34. He delivers him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That's a very strong word, jailers. It means tormentors, torturers. If you have an NIV Bible... It means, the IV reads it like this, it turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. Now let me submit something to you that I believe. When you and I don't forgive people who have offended us, wounded us, God may put us into a prison of torment that we will never get out of until we repent and forgive. Matter of fact, that's what that phrase there, until he should pay all of his debt means. The debt that he had to pay wasn't his original debt because the king had already erased that. That debt is already gone. He's talking about the debt of being merciful, the debt of forgiving. So once this servant would learn to forgive, once he would learn to be merciful, God then would release him from this prison of torment and from his tormentors. See, you've got to understand that there are consequences of not forgiving. Some of our physical, emotional, mental, spiritual issues in our life are the result of not forgiving. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're one of those persons, you can go to whatever counselor you want. You can get all the counseling you want. You can pay all the money you want for counseling. You can get buy all the prescriptions you want. You can do all the praying you want. You can pray to your blue in the face. Nothing is going to help until you repent and forgive. That's what he's talking about here. You know, Billy Graham once said a number of years ago, Made this statement. He said 75% of patients in hospitals today would be made whole if they would just be willing to forgive. An administrator of one of the largest psychiatric hospitals in London said, if people here only knew what it meant to forgive, I could dismiss half of them at once. And by the way, we know that. We know that there are physical and mental and emotional consequences for sin. For unrepented sin, that was true in the Church of Corinth. We just celebrated communion this morning, the Lord's table, and it was interesting. In First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven, they were they they were just missed. they were abusing the Lord's table. They were they were drinking the wine. They were asking for seconds. I mean, they were getting drunk at the Lord's tab- table. They were coming to the Lord's table, not examining themselves. They were coming to the Lord's table, not confessing sin and repenting of sin, and they were taken of it. And Paul says the result of that was this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. He said, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. See, there are physical, mental, emotional consequences for sin, and unforgiveness is a sin. We must forgive because it's a necessity. So, how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, let me give you some practical steps for this, all right? Three of them this morning. And by the way, I don't want to say it's very hard. Matter of fact, I wrote very hard, I scribbled that out. I wrote nearly impossible, I scribbled that out, and I really wrote the word impossible. I think it's impossible in the flesh to be able to forgive. I think this is spiritual warfare, and the only way that you're able to forgive the way God wants you to forgive is through the Holy Spirit and the word of God, it's that important of a thing, so what do you need to do, let me give you three, I don't even want to call them steps, because they don't have to be in this order, but I guess you can make them steps if you want to, so practical steps in forgiving, first of all, number one, confess an unforgiving attitude is sin, Confess an, an unforgiving attitude of sin. First John 1, 9, we know it. If we confess our sins, and the word confess means we say the same thing about the sin that God says about it. Well, we've already seen what God says about it. Now, we've got to say the same thing that God says about it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us. That's what we talked about two weeks ago, parental forgiveness, parental forgiveness. Why is this so hard? You know what I found? I found that with believers, it is easier for them to, to, to confess the grossest, most immoral sins that they may commit rather than this sin of unforgiveness. Why is it so hard to confess this as sin? And I tell you, the reason I think is because when we believe that we have a right to something, we don't see it as sin. We don't see it the way God sees it. They hurt me, they owe me. They're going to pay. And as long as we keep that attitude, we're not going to see it as sin. We're not going to see that unforgiveness as sin. Even though we may be suffering the consequences spiritually or physically or mentally or emotionally, and we don't see that because they hurt me. They sinned against me. I want to throw a couple Bible verses up here on the PowerPoint. I want you to see them. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. David says this. He said, "If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, that means if I if I just wanted to keep sin there, if I didn't want to deal with it, I just wanted to be there. I wanted to stay there. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened." In other words, you pray. Guess what? You go to pray. God's not hearing. God's not listening. I hear people say sometimes. Sometimes they feel like their prayers don't get higher than the ceiling. Well, maybe there's a reason why they're not getting higher than the ceiling because maybe God's not listening. And God might not be listening because you have cherished some kind of iniquity in your heart, maybe an unforgiving attitude. Look at what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty-five. He says, and whenever you stand praying, what's the first thing you need to do? Forgive. If you have anything against anyone. <laughs> now listen, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands because it would be thoroughly embarrassed for all of us, right? Does anybody in here not have anything against somebody? And Jesus says, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now think about this. What does David say causes God not to listen to our prayers? Sin what does Jesus say will also hinder our prayers? Unforgiveness. So if if sin hinders our prayers and unforgiveness hinders our prayers, then I think it would be reasonable to conclude that unforgiveness is one of the sins that hinders our prayers, right? Unforgiveness is a sin. And if there's anything that we need to realize the most is the sinfulness of, of unforgiveness my friend it's not just a problem it's not just a mistake it's not just a flaw it is an affront to a gracious merciful God who has forgiven us far more than he will ever ask you to forgive anybody else and to not do it is flagrant disobedient sin so first thing you need to do confess an unforgiving attitude to sin secondly You need to constantly be changing your focus. Constantly be changing your focus. Now, what do I mean by changing your focus? Two things. First of all, changing your focus means viewing your offender's sins against your sins against God. Okay? Viewing your offender's sins against you to your sins against God. The first servant... Got caught up with the second servant's sins because he was focused on the second servant rather than focusing on how much he had been forgiven of sins he had committed against the king. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4:32. Paul says this Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As. There's that word. We saw it last week. As. As. In the same way, in the same manner. Forgiving one another as God, in the same manner as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Did he just verbally forgive you? Just say, I forgive you, but then he holds it against you the next time you sin? He says, You know, I knew it because you, you do this all the time. Does he bring that back up to us? I don't think so because we saw in Jeremiah, he says, your iniquities and sins, I will remember no more. They're gone away. God has forgiven us. We are to forgive the same way that God forgives. As a matter of fact, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and I pointed this out to you last week, when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive those who sin against us in the same way that we forgive them. that's that's what you're praying you're saying Lord I want you to forgive me the same way I forgive so you can say well I don't think we have to forgive that way that's all right. you just need to understand God is going to forgive you the way you forgive others so however you forgive others that's the way God is going to forgive you because that's what you're praying He says the same thing in Colossians 3.13. Forgiving each other as the Lord. There's that comparative again. As the Lord has forgiven you. But now notice he's a little stronger here. So you also must forgive. Forgiveness is not suggestive, folks. It's imperative. It's a command. Don't focus on how badly a person has hurt you and how much you're going to have to forgive them. Rather, change your focus on how badly you had offended God and how much He had already forgiven you. The basis, listen, the basis of your ability to forgive is remembering constantly how much you've been forgiven. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that. And if you don't think... If you don't think you've offended God that much, then people's offenses are going to seem a whole lot greater to you because that's where your focus will be, okay? So changing our focus means that we view our offenders' sins against us to our sins against God. But secondly, and this one may be even a tougher pill to swallow, changing our focus means that we view view offenders as God's agents in our life. We view offenders as God's agents in our life. Let me give you two examples, one divine, one human. First of all, the divine example would be Jesus, okay? He's hanging on the cross, two thieves on each side, people out front mocking him, blaspheming him, and what are the first words that come out of his mouth? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Now, literally, that means yes. They did not know that they were crucifying the Son of God. But it also means that they did not not also know that God was using them. They were the agents of God to put Jesus to death to bring about the salvation that he would give to all mankind. Listen to what Peter said in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Look at it up here. He says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of Pilate, right? Is that what it says? To the definite plan and foreknowledge of Herod, of the Jews, of the Romans. No, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And he said, but here's your part, you crucified it. You still did it, you're still responsible. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says a similar thing if you go two chapters over in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. We find here believers praying together after they have been persecuted and they're praying to God. And here's part of their prayer. They said, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Yeah, they're the ones that did it. They're the ones who did it. Well, look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were used by God. They were agents of God to fulfill God's purpose. They crucified Christ according to God's plan and purpose. It was still their sin. They were still accountable for it, but God used them. Do you understand that? People, God is sovereign. I mean, if God determines when a sparrow is going to fall to the ground dead, if God gives life to every seed that you plant in your garden, don't you think he kind of knows what's going on in your life? Don't you think he already determined the people you're going to run into, the people who are going to hurt you, the people who are going to offend you? How's he going to use that for his glory? How's he going to use that to help make you more like Jesus? So view offenders as God's agents in our life. First of all, we see the example in Jesus, but let me give you another example. And that's the, the example of Joseph. Oh, you know, we could do a whole sermon on this. In Genesis, I just encourage you, if you don't know much about Joseph, go home and read Genesis 37 through 50. It's the whole life of Joseph. So let me give it to you in a nutshell. He he had 11 other brothers, a younger one and 10 older ones. The 10 older ones hated him because he was his daddy's favorite. Daddy would always send him out to go check on the other brothers. So one day he sent him out to go check on the brothers. They saw him coming. They said, we've had it. We've had it with daddy's favorites. So they got a hold of him, they beat him up, they threw him in the pit. They were going to kill him. And finally the oldest, Reuben, said, no, because dad's going to hold me accountable. So he said, just put him in this pit and he was going to come back and rescue him. Well, while they're sitting around, Reuben went and did something else. When Reuben came back, he goes to the pit to rescue Joseph. Joseph was gone because they sold Joseph to some Midianite uh, traders going into Egypt. Joseph gets to Egypt and he gets sold as a slave, he spends the next 13 years of his life from age 17 to 30 as a slave or a prisoner in Egypt, one night he's sitting in jail uh, and there's a pharaoh's butler and baker sitting there, they both have a dream, they didn't know what it meant, Joseph says well I know that God can interpret dreams so let me tell you what it means, So he told them both what it meant, and sure enough, the next day it happened, just as they said, unfortunately for the baker, very fortunately for the butler. The butler was restored to Pharaoh. And Joseph said to the butler, he says, hey, when you get before Pharaoh, tell him about me because I shouldn't be here. Tell him about my situation. Butler says, sure. Two years go by, he forgets all about Joseph. One night, Pharaoh has a dream. And the dream, he has two dreams. One is a good dream, and the other is a bad dream. He wakes up, and nobody can tell him what his dream meant. And all of a sudden, guess what? Yep, the butler has a V8 moment. Oh, man, Joseph, forgot all about Joseph. Hey, we got a guy, there's a Hebrew sitting in your jail. He knows how to interpret dreams. So he brings Joseph, who interprets the dream, and says, yeah, there's going to be seven. Here's the first dream, seven good years of plenty in Egypt. Here's the second dream, seven years of famine. And a seven years of famine are going to be so bad, you won't even remember the seven years of good. And so Pharaoh says, You know what? This guy's got it together. I'm going to make him the head over Egypt. Besides myself, there won't be anybody higher than Joseph. So He puts him over all the food in Egypt, the distribution of food. And sure enough, the famine comes. And when the famine comes, it's worldwide, which means it goes all the way down to where Joseph's dad and brothers were living. And one day Jacob realized, hey, he went to the refrigerator and it's bare. He says to the 10 brothers, you better get to Egypt and get us some food. So they hightailed up to Egypt and they walk in to where the governor of Egypt is. Guess who the governor of Egypt is? It's Joseph, or it's Joseph. They didn't recognize him. He recognized them. Now, can I ask you a question right now? If you'd have been beaten by your, brothers and sisters, or by your brothers, if you'd have been sold, if you'd have been plotted to be killed by your brothers, and now you are the governor of Egypt, standing in front of them, what would you do to them? How would you respond to them? Well, chapter 45 of Genesis tells us, and I'm going to just throw three verses up here real quick, that tells us how Joseph responded. And by the way, his response is after he told his brothers. In chapter 45, he tells his brothers that he's Joseph. Now they're really terrified because now they know he can do exactly what he wants to do with him because he's the governor of Egypt. Notice what, how he responds to them. Verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. In other words, guess what? They were guilty. <laughs> there was a real debt here. They did sell him. Don't be distressed or angry because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. Who, who sent? God. Wait a minute. God didn't sell him to the Midianites. God didn't lie about him that he tried to rape a woman. God didn't put him in prison. And yet, look what Joseph said. Look where his focus was. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. By the way, if you go to chapter fifty. He reiterates this again in chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, because in between chapter 45 and chapter 50, Joseph's father dies, Jacob dies, and the brothers get together and they say, you know what, I think Joseph's just being kind to us because he didn't want to hurt daddy, daddy's gone, now Joseph's going to even the score. So they made up this little story and they went to Joseph and said, hey, uh, Joseph, daddy said, uh, he didn't get a chance to tell you, but he told us to tell you that you, you need to forgive us. He wants you to forgive us fully because we just were out of our heads and didn't know what we were doing. And Joseph felt terrible because he realized his brothers are still struggling with the guilt of this. And he says this in Genesis 50:19 19 and 20. Listen to this. Joseph said to them, do not fear. Now please get this next statement. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? I don't have this on your outline, but write this in someplace. Do you know what unforgiveness is? It's you playing God. That's what unforgiveness is. It's you playing God. As for you, verse 20, you meant it for evil. Against me, God meant it for good. Joseph looked beyond his brothers. His focus was on God, not his brothers. He was able to see that his brothers were simply the agents in God's hands to accomplish God's purposes in his life. My friend, either we will focus on people who hurt us or we will focus on the purpose of God who has allowed them, who has allowed them to sin against us, to hurt us. Where's your focus? One last step. Constantly be changing your focus. Confess an attitude on forgiveness of sin. Thirdly, and this may be the hardest one, voluntarily, voluntarily invest something of value into that person's life. I think this is what Paul meant in Romans 12 21 when he said, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's no neutral ground. You are either overcome with evil or you make an investment that will overcome evil with good. And if you don't make an investment in a person's life who has sinned against you or wounded you or offended you, you are in danger of being overcome with evil. You are in danger of being put in and remaining in a prison of torment all of your lives. And you say, well, what kind of investment should I make? What kind of investment can I make? I think Jesus gave us some direction. I asked the Holy Spirit. He'll give you wisdom, but I think Jesus gave us some direction in Luke 6, 27 and 28. Look at what he says. Love your friends, right? Love your what? Your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You can invest In people who have hurt you and offended you, you can invest a loving act, a good deed, a kind word, a sincere prayer. Matter of fact, let me tell you something about praying for people who have hurt you. You cannot pray for anyone you've not forgiven. Did you know that? You will not pray for anyone that you've not forgiven. And even in cases, because I know you're going through your head, well, what about this case? What about this situation? Well, listen, even in cases of divorce and remarriage, and you have to watch out what you invest that won't jeopardize if uh, a spouse has remarried someone else or you've remarried someone else, you've got to watch out for what you invest that won't jeopardize the marriage, but you can invest kind words, you can invest prayer, you can invest prayer for peace, prayer for joy, prayer for blessing, you can invest those things, because remember this, it's not for them. Forgiveness is for who? It's for you. It's for the one who's been offended not just for the offender. It frees you when you do those things. And why should you do that? Because here's what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 18. You thought I had forgot about verse 35, didn't you? I didn't. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. What's that? He'll turn you over to the tormentors. If you do not forgive your brothers from your what? Woo. I want to tell you something. It's a lot easier to do mouth forgiveness than heart forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I've said it many times, right? Someone has hurt me and I said, well, I forgive you only to turn around and still be holding that against them. Still bring that up. Every time I mouth the words, but the heart's not there, you say, well, how do you get the heart there? I think Jesus gave us that principle in Matthew 6.21. Look at what he says here in Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, and that word treasure means a deposit or where you invest something. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The only way that... You can know that you've forgiven from the heart is if you make an investment into someone's life that has sinned against you. For where your investment is, that's where your heart is. And if you can't make an investment into a person's life, it's because your heart isn't there. And if your heart isn't there, it's because you haven't forgiven them. And if you haven't forgiven them, you may be in worse condition than they are. Are we agreed after three Sundays that there's a great necessity for forgiveness? great necessity. Would you bow your heads? And I would like you just for a moment, every head bow and every eye closed. I'm not going to give an invitation to come forward or anything like that, but I just want you to search your heart, and you've been searching it. A number of you have talked with me. If you're holding something against someone, would you be willing at this moment to say with God's help, I am going to fully forgive that person and I will invest something of value into their lives for the glory of God and for their good and for my healing, whether it's a prayer, a kind word, whatever it may be. If you would do that, or if you would say, Pastor Mike, I want to do that, pray for me that God will give me the grace to do that. Would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Great, I see that. I see that. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the time that you've allowed me to be with this flock, this family of people. I thank you, Lord, for your grace that sustains them through difficult times. This is your church, Lord Jesus. It is not their reputation that it's at stake, it is yours. So I ask you to continue to do a work in their lives continue to be glorified with this body of believers. I pray that they will see spiritual growth. I pray that they will see numerical growth. I see it. pray that they will see people who do not know you come to, by faith to know you as their Lord and Savior in this place. And that you'd receive the glory that you are due. And what Satan meant for evil you will turn to good for your glory and for their good. So may your peace and your blessing be upon them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.